And here we go yet again. Welcome back. This is I Eat Movies, number 34, Scene Report, Volume 4. Always love when we do this. Uh, I'm, of course, your co-host, Mike, joined by my good pal and one of the greatest menches out there, my pal, Dino. How are you, sir? Oh, I, I don't think I'd call myself a mensch, but that's fine, too. Oh. Thank you. How's it going? How's it good, going? man. Good. It's always great to get back on here. It's been a little bit. I'm going to pat myself on the back for convincing you to do uh, an episode in this in this month of August where you have way too much shit to do and way too many shows to go to <laughs> and way too many movies to see uh, and 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 way too much drive in to, to, to put into your life. But um, oddly enough, I managed to surprise Mike this mm-hmm. summer. That you did. Just yeah, that showing was up at the drive in one Tuesday. That, that was a wonderful surprise to show up on the lot, see Dino's van and then turn around and be like, hey, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> turn around and say, I'm fucking leaving. Yeah, um, <laughs> that was great. That was a really nice surprise and a, and a fun, uh, unexpected time. A, a midweek hang. That was real good. Love that. Yeah, it was uh, it was on a Tuesday and uh, it just so happened that my friend Josh uh, of the Gilbert Gottfried podcast team. Good it guy. was like the only great guy. Uh, he he was. It was just the only time that he had this summer to meet up at the drive-in because he's. Um, it's a convenient spot for us to link up at, basically. So yeah. uh, it turns out we both went to see um, *Lethal Weapon*. <laughs> yes, yes. Start starting at ground zero with a. Uh this scene report of course this is one of our episodes where we love to kind of get a you know we take a break from our uh from our research duties and kind of like you know lay back a little bit and uh talk about and converse about just the things that we've been independently watching but as dino said well what better place to start than uh a film that we both got to experience together and that of course was 1987's Lethal Weapon. Uh, obviously, anybody who's been following this show, uh, you never have to twist our arm to talk about a Richard Donner film. Um, so that was a fun one. That's a really fun one uh, to revisit. Of course, we got to experience it. Really wonderful uh, print on 35 millimeter as part of uh, Mahoning and Exhumes Tunnel Vision Tuesday series. Um, I've always loved Lethal Weapon. I'm a huge fan of that one. Um, the chemistry between Mel gibson and danny glover and of course just the way that uh donner orchestrates that action and of course the the black comedy of shane black uh infused in it It, i think it's one of the best examples of the buddy picture i think right alongside running scared i would put that up at um but yeah that that's always a blast Uh, i don't know i i i i if if it if we haven't mentioned it in the past 10 minutes uh we are 10 years apart in age <laughs> something of a, a a theme we you know something of, of a horror <laughs> we like to talk about it from from you know now and again yeah it's the old mare that we beat every you know we beat to death every episode but uh no i hadn't seen it i i'm not the biggest male fan but uh i hadn't seen it in easily 20 years and i remembered all the jokes i remembered where the setup is i remember where anthony kiedis's dad shows up mm-hmm. i remember you know and it, it, because this is one of those movies it just came out when i was 10 years old it's one of those movies that we just you know couldn't hide from it I saw it so many times as a kid so it was you know okay it, it was an easy thing to coast through because i'm like oh yeah this is where he says the thing with the thing and this is where um somebody made a good point about it where it's like they don't buy anything Mel Gibson says, and he's supposed to be the character, whereas Danny Glover sells it and is doing all the work, and he's the actual funny one. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and that kind of resonated with me, but, um, it's, it's, you know, it's good to see, it's good to see that cast and, and so forth. But, uh, I don't know for me, it's, it, it was, it was, um, it was cool to see and it looked good on the big screen. That's for sure. But like, I, I, I can go another 20 years without seeing lethal weapon for, sorry. Now, uh, well, this is interesting since uh, you mentioned you were 10 when you saw it, did you stick with the franchise as it was coming out at the time? Uh, two I, uh, not really. Uh, I'm pretty sure I saw two. Um, I think two's really strong too. I, th- I think it's you know it's it's not. I have no I have no memory of what made two different, mm-hmm. but um, I will say that like the more comic relief Joe Pesci that series got, the less I was interested. So mm-hmm. uh, that's just me. Okay, fair enough. I will I will say, um, two. Um, I think Mel Gibson arguably sported the best and most respectable mullet of the decade. I think he pulls it off super, super well where it's not laughable. It just, he just looks good wearing it, which that's not, that's, that's not a compliment that I can lay easily on anybody who, who proudly rocked a mullet in the eighties, but he pulls it off damn good. I, I think we have to ask Carl and Daryl to come up with their top five eighties. <laughs> uh, that is one I would love to throw their way. Our friends, Carl and Daryl love to do the top five. Yes. Their, their top five yeah. podcast. Yeah. I, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not sure about ranking mullets. I, you know, I, I have to think of people like, you know, Brian Bosworth and, and whatever, but yeah, I don't know. It, it was a, it was a good hang. It was it was a nice night, and we only we had a, li- a little sprinkle of rain that night. A little um, bit. We should explain. Real, we should explain to people. Um, I don't know what people assume if they're not drive-in regulars or if they go to different drive-ins. Mm-hmm. But the thing about the Mahoning is that people bring chairs. It's it's most people like you're in the minority if you sit in your car. I mean, some yeah. people some people will turn around and you know lie in their tailgate or something. But most of us, especially if you're somebody who's lucky enough to get a front row position, you bring like a lawn chair and a radio. Oh, yeah. And, and that's really like you're outside. And and uh, one of the traditions in that valley, the Mahoning Valley, uh, is that um, is that the, when the temperatures really drop, you get a little bit of dew covering everything. Oh, yeah. Condensation. Okay, and nice that, and moist. That didn't happen. But, you know, as happens a lot. That, in, the, in a valley in Pennsylvania, there was yeah. a little bit of rain, but it came and went pretty fast. And uh, it's a nice night. It was a nice yeah. night. It was, uh, it was actually a pretty um, smooth ride home for me. So uh, that's always that's always good when you're driving five hours round trip to see one movie. So. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I think I got I typically get home from the from the Tuesday series a little after 1 a.m., uh, mm-hmm. which is which is uh, pretty respectable in comparison to some of the weekend shows where I'm not. You know, I'm rolling in home after a long weekend anywhere as late as 3 a.m. or uh, before just before dawn sometimes, Um, which is uh, always fun. A little rough, but always fun. But yes, Lethal Weapon. That was a great, great uh, fun hang. And somebody actually on the lot posed this question to me, which I thought was interesting. And I would ask you, do you do you think and I never thought about this before? And I was like, that's interesting. I think that's possible. They said they asked me if I thought um and I don't, I don't nor I, you know, I, I certainly don't consider Lethal Weapon a Christmas movie in the slightest. But there is the setting of Christmas time injected in Lethal Weapon. And yeah. somebody on the lot asked me, "Do you think that Die Hard saw 
lethal weapon do that and saw how successful they were that that's why they set theirs on christmas because as as you know die hard released a year after lethal weapon i said you know i never thought of that because i think more people consider die hard a christmas movie i'm not really one i'm not in that um i wouldn't put myself in that grouping necessarily wait wait, wait. so you don't think die hard is a christmas movie i don't know i mean i don't i know I, I, the the evidence has been presented to me many times. <laughs> I'm sure, and and like I, you know, I I don't have a a strong defense for saying no against it, but I just, you know, I guess it I guess it boils down to your what your personal parameters are for what constitutes a Christmas movie. And yes, it's set at it. I think the holiday um, plays a factor in the plot to some degree or another but it just it, it's i've never been one of those people that needs to get their annual christmas die hard screening and that's why i i oh, I, 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 I don't think i know anyone who does that but all right some people do and i've never been i just like if i want to watch you know if i'm on an 80s action indulgence streak yeah surely die hard will pop up but i did think that that was an interesting question to pose because i never really thought about it but yeah i mean how successful Lethal Weapon was, maybe, you know, Die Hard was like, well, they said it at Christmas. That's an interesting angle for an action movie. Why don't we take that and run with it more so than even Lethal Weapon did? So I I, I guess my answer would be maybe, sure. I don't know. Well, isn't that like a Shane Black thing anyway? Doesn't he set everything at Christmas? Yeah, I mean, he has. I mean, I, I believe I believe portions of the nice guys takes place there uh kiss kiss bang bang is i've tried to forget i've tried to forget the time i watched the nice guys oh, uh but um, anyway uh <laughs> but uh it's um no i i feel like he, I, I think he isn't he no i thought he was known for that i could be wrong um i, I, so. I don't know it's interesting i don't know it's I, interesting uh, i just ne- never thought about it but i i thought it was an interesting thing to to question me on but yes lethal weapon fun fun one to revisit uh you want to go with the next one on, on what you uh, have recently been viewing? You know, uh, <laughs> I start. OK, so one of the concepts for this particular scene report was that this was our summer vacation from Letterboxd. <laughs> um, and, oh. and what I asked Mike to do uh, and, and, and thankfully, um, you know, you humored me was to not review any of the movies you watched leading up to this scene report episode. On Letterbox, because I see them all the time, especially yep. when because, you know, it's it's an app, so it makes you addicted to it. It's yes, a, it's a great part of modern life yep. anyway. Um, but uh, I just wanted to, to, you know, to try to take a break from it. So like the first movie I, I, I put on my list, uh, I enjoyed. And now I'm like, damn, I, you know, I need to just watch it again. Uh, I went back to one of the standards, one of the classics. So uh, I watched, a, you know, 1959's Rio Bravo. So oh. Howard Hawks and, uh, you know, Howard Hawks directing John Wayne in one of, you know, his big roles. And, I, you know, I enjoyed it. Uh, I definitely remember thinking, wow, I I, I get I kind of kind of thought this is, this is so so like genre dork of me. But I kind of went in saying, well, I, I, I guess there's a little bit of a connection to Assault on Precinct 13, um, <laughs> which is what it's always mentioned. But uh, no, I, you know, I thought it was great. I thought it was really, you know. It was enjoyable. The thing is, I, I didn't, you know, I, I need to sit down and watch it again because it was it was the first time taking all of it in and trying to, you know, get wrap my head around the, the story um, and maybe not exactly getting all the, you know, the nuance, <laughs> effect of it yeah. and so forth. 
Yeah. But um, you know, uh, you know, a, a, a great one for sure. Definitely one that I had never seen before. Oh, um, nor so. have I. Nor have I. And I believe Warner Brothers just put out a really beautiful 4K. So I'd like to get that. So well, that's I, awesome. I watched it on a DVD and I was plenty happy. Nice, uh, nice. Yeah. Well, that's a good reminder. Yeah, I didn't need to get onto that. Um, I will raise you. Um, I revisited uh, an old favorite of mine, a coming of ager, uh, from 1986, Lucas. Um, really, wow. yeah, it's a really charming, uh, occasionally beautiful, um, outsider teenage film, um, starring Corey Haim and what I would say is probably was probably his best performance as this, you know, outsider, uh, teenager, um, whose life is somewhat turned upside down with the arrival of a new student, beautiful student, uh, who's played by Carrie Green, um, and they meet over the course of the summer. And then of course, once school kicks in again, it's slowly but surely revealed that um, Lucas is pretty much the nerd of the school and is consistently picked on. Um, and it's about this bond and, you know, eventual uh, crush that the Lucas character has on Carrie greens. And then of course, uh, you know, it, it all kind of um, reaches a climax when he decides to uh, try out for the football team, which is headed by, uh, a young Charlie Sheen who uh, takes to Lucas, you know, takes a liking to Lucas and sticks up for him um, throughout the film. I've always loved this film. Um, I think there's really beautiful stuff going on it. Uh, David Seltzer directed it. I met David actually several years ago um, and he was a super nice guy. I, I, I have a Lucas one sheet that I was fortunate enough to get Corey to sign prior to his passing. And then I did meet Carrie Green, who's very rare to meet as well. And she was really sweet. Um, but yeah, David was great to meet. And David's been, you know, he's been in the industry a mighty long time, uh, you know, handling so much stuff. He wrote the screenplay for Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Um, I also brought him my novelization of The Omen, um, which he was happy to sign. Um, and I told him, he told me an interesting story. Uh, as I kind of gushed to Lucas about him, he told me an interesting story when I told him, I said, oh, yeah, um, you know, surely he had to have heard about it. But I was like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, Quentin Tarantino says that your novelization of The Omen is like one of the best. Uh, and oh. then he he <laughs> he raised me that by telling me an interesting um, an interesting story about uh, how. Tarantino more or less stole Once Upon a Time in Hollywood from him. And nice. I went, what? <laughs> I'm like, do tell me this story. So basically, um, the gist of this uh, this story was, I think, uh, Seltzer was developing a Manson project, a Manson-esque project for many, many years was in development or something. And I think he, he made the suggestion that I think Tarantino was like very aware of it. And I, th I think it might have even been so much that Seltzer had it set up at Sony, where, of hmm. course, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was produced through. Um, so I think that he he brought that up to me with, like, maybe the slightest hint of bitterness about it. Although, well, uh, of course, sure. I mean, I you know, but at the same time, um, you know, it, without all of the details, it's kind of hard to uh, say that somebody stole your Manson story because obviously that's rooted in you know that that's kind of rooted in like historical fact like like I, I don't i don't think that anybody beating one person to the punch on telling a charles manson story is necessarily indicative of uh 
them stealing your property, but it was a very interesting thing that he decided don't, to like. You don't have to defend Tarantino's honor. You know that. Right? Oh, no. <laughs> I just thought that was fascinating. It was very fascinating. Um, but yeah, I mean, he was very proud to sign the uh, Omen paperback. But yeah, Lucas, uh, he didn't direct many um, films. He did Lucas and then he did um, later on uh, that decade, he did the Tom Hanks, Sally Field stand up comedy film oh, uh, yeah, Punchline, yeah. Yeah, which yeah. is really good, too. That's a really underrated film that I, I would really impress upon people to check out. Um, but yeah, Lucas, I've always loved a uh, great cast in that one. Winona Ryder appears in that, too. That might be her first role. That even predates Beetlejuice. Um, but everybody's so good in it. They're very natural. Um, and yeah, it's really beautiful stuff in that one. So yeah, that, that was, a that was really a, a great one to revisit and, you know, especially in the, the dying days of the summer season. Sounds good. Um, Thank well, you. the next one I went to, uh, uh, yeah, one of my coworkers loaned me a copy of this movie. Cause I think, you know, <laughs> There's there's many ways to eat movies. We'll, we'll put it that way. And and, and I yeah. have to admit, Mike and I have different ways individually. But um, uh, I am so spoiled that I uh, work in a place where movies are playing all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I occasionally have to get up to restart movies um, and interrupting my work and so forth. <laughs> um, but uh, one of my coworkers put this on at one point and then said, "Hey, you kind of like this. Why don't you take this home?" Um, and it's not a director I really esteem very highly, but, um, Fred Olin Rays. Oh. 1988 film Deep Space. Oh, yeah, um, I have a... Which is, uh, I, I, I think, uh, I think it was handed to me as, this is probably Fred Olin Rays' best real movie. Uh, <laughs> Fred Olin Ray, if you're not familiar with him, is an absolutely interesting character, uh, of B movies, but a lot of the stuff he made is pretty silly and pretty like you know bikini car wash. I don't know if he made that, but anyway, it's that level of like like he made he's he's similar to Jim Wynorski. He made he made a, such a such an incredible output of low budget movies and especially uh, especially like silly like Skinamax cable um, mm-hmm. you know softcore movies within the nineties like really cheap sophomore softcore t- type things and then just like Winorski strangely enough went into Christmas movies so yeah. <laughs> ended up making like <laughs> there's Christmas money in Christmas there there's capital in Christmas baby but he's like he's totally somebody he, he followed um, he follows like the a lot of the exploitation. Um, the traditional exploitation movie maker uh, trends, including what like what Larry Cohen and probably I guess Corman did was was get older stars and put them in his movies. Deep Space is uh, Charles Napier in the lead. Um, also, Bo Svensson's in it. Ron Glass shows up. He's got uh, he doesn't have a lot to do, and he's got um, pretty bad hair. Like I don't know what they did with his hair. It looks some bizarre like. You know, there it is. But some bizarre Mike is holding up the disc. And you haven't watched it, right? Oh, of course not. <laughs> See, I, he says, of course not. I'm looking at Mike right now with hundreds of movies behind him. And what's your percentage of things you've seen? I don't want to talk about it. Thank you. Okay. Good. <laughs> uh, I have since filled my, you know, my quarters with more movies I haven't watched. But anyway. Um, so, yeah, Ron Glass is in it. His hair is kind of off. James Booth, the English actor, who I mostly know as playing like villains in, in English productions. Norman Burton, 
um, veteran of like television and movies and and Turkel. It's literally it's this interesting mix of um, it, it, it's very of the time for 88. It's an interesting mix of kind of hard boiled cop and sci fi. So it, it has uh, it really would pair pretty well with Night of the Creeps because oh. it is about like an alien invader, um, sort of. It's also might be developed by like the military um, <laughs> and, and 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 so forth. Oh, yeah. And let, lest I forget um, the weirdo, the weirdo psychic who keeps calling up the um, skeptical Charles Napier, the hard cop is Julie Newmar from Ooh. Batman. So, nice. it, you know, it's for for a low budget movie. It works pretty damn well and, uh, you know, really enjoyable. I actually, you know, I, there's a lot of Fred Olin Ray stuff that I've either seen or seen a little bit of and I'm good with. But uh, this one, actually, it might be the one. It might be the nice. one for this director. So uh, I recommend it. <laughs> this this might be the one he could be remembered for. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I mean, you know, again, you know, like I, I, have, I have younger co-workers and some of them didn't have the experiences that I had where we got so sick of um, a certain kind of B-movie, a certain kind of movie that just played over and over and over to death on cable, and, and, or just like the trend of the time in the mid-90s was a certain kind of like, you know, like like not good erotic thriller or not good just kind of mediocre sexploitation thing, like, you know, or whatever. And it, it, it kind of ran its course for me, you know. So a lot of those movies that are just really, really goofy humor, they're a lot more novel to somebody who's, you know, even 10 years younger than you. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I'm just kind of like, yeah, I, I don't have the best associations with that, you know, just because of where I was and, and who I was at the time and, and so forth. But, but yeah, Deep Space might for, – for Fred Olin Ray, Deep Space might be the one, might be the best one. Nice. Well, that, that definitely uh... – We'll add it uh, higher up on my watch list now. Good stuff. Um, I will transition and talk about actually one of the greatest films of all time. Certainly one of uh, my top ten favorite. This is a film that I could probably do well with watching close to once a week if I felt so inclined. Um, and that would be uh, not only Johnny Depp's best performance, but undeniably Tim Burton's best film. I am, of course, talking about 1994's Ed Wood. Just fucking great. It's a fucking great movie. This is your favorite movie of all time, right? One of my... It's it's in my top ten. It's not I feel like you said that once. I'm not trying to... Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, like, you know, pick, pick a day. I mean, like, yeah. I mean, like, if, if somebody asked me that, I, I, I'm not going to tell you no. But it's certainly up there. It's in the top... It's in... It's always in the conversation of the top ten ever since I've seen it. I remember stumbling upon this film uh, during a TNT broadcast. And I still remember the moment, um, the scene that I stumbled across where I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, I've never seen this black and white Johnny Depp movie. And it's the scene where... Ed Wood is speaking to George Weiss in his office and he's trying to secure the directing job on Glenn or Glenda. And he's trying to explain why he's the perfect man for the job. And that's because he likes to dress in women's clothing. And from there, I was like, what is this? And I, in a rare form, I mean, I guess this was more common back then as you were, as you were uh, channel surfing, you'd stumble upon something, get interested and then just stick with it till the end. Sure. Um, not so much anymore. Now you're just kind of like, oh, no, 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 no. I want to see this from the beginning. But that 
from that scene on, it just, it just captured my attention and I watched it to the end. And then, um, you know, at that, at that point in time, that film, uh, it was on video, uh, but it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was like impossible to find, but it was a little bit more difficult than obviously something like Beetlejuice or Batman to find at. Let's just, let's say that like not every video store carried this particular film. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't the easiest thing to see. Um, And then it was MIA on DVD during the DVD era for some time. And then eventually Disney did release it in a really nice edition with, uh, you know, commentaries and um, interviews and what have you. Um, and ever since then, um, you know, I got deeply, deeply addicted to um, the history of Ed Wood. I remember being um, a junior in high school. And the big thing that you have to do, at least in my high school, was the JRP. It was the junior research paper. Uh, and you can pick you could pick any topic you possibly wanted to discuss. Um, and you had to, you know, obviously, you know, have sources and do a detailed, uh, you you know, uh, bibliography and it had to be, uh, nine to 12 pages. And I remember I wrote my paper on the real Ed Wood and my paper was 14 pages because I got, (laughs) I got so into it. I, I was absolutely obsessed with, um, Rudolph Gray's Nightmare of Ecstasy book. I was just about um, to ask if that was your primary, yeah. A primary source. And I, I cannot recommend that book enough. It, it, it was a big, um, you know, obviously a big influence on the film, the, the writing duo, uh, Larry, the great Larry Karaszewski and Scott Alexander's per- pitch perfect script, huge, um, you know, huge influence on them. But yeah, I adore that book to this day. And if you can get that, it's out of print, but it's not, it's hardly, um, uh, an expensive book to get. So I, always recommend getting, um, you know, to people to get that. So I got really into Ed Wood. Uh, very, I found him really inspiring, tragic, um, a tragic story, but just still very inspiring that he did as much as he did, um, knowing that he wasn't, you know, he wasn't necessarily seen, um, like he would have wanted to be seen like a, like a, like an Orson Welles. Um, yeah. But back to the film itself, uh, it's just a pitch perfect film, um, a perfect screenplay, perfect casting, uh, beautiful photography, an excellent score by Howard Shore. Uh, the rare time that uh, Danny Elfman didn't score a Tim Burton project because they had a brief falling out. So um, as much as Elfman and Burton are so intertwined together with their work, it's so hard to um, separate that film from the Howard Shore score. Cause it's so great. It's so fucking great. Um, but I just love that film. It's, it's, a, it's, it's inspiring. It's funny. It's heartbreaking. It's sweet, but it's, and it's just, you know, it, it you know, I, I think that me and you definitely, um, bond on movies about movies. And I think Ed Wood is like the gold standard for that hands down the gold standard uh for it so it's like i said i, I could watch that movie like once a week one one of the well know, how often do you watch it I, oh i could probably i probably watch it at least once a year once or twice a year okay at least yeah and i i mean I've and how long it. i'm sorry how I, I, forgive me if you said this i, I didn't catch it but mm-hmm. how long has it been since you saw it last probably last year okay so yeah, first, probably, time, first time this year. Got yeah, it. Probably, yeah, first time this year. I just I just got in the, the mood for it. And I think that came off of um, the insane journey that me and my pal James did uh, as we traveled to East Corinth, Vermont uh, in one day, in one day, 
we drove there to visit the filming locations of Beetlejuice, too. So Burton was def- definitely very much on the mind. And I was just like, you know what? I am very much in the mindset for Ed Wood. I think it's time. I think it's the, the, the annual time for some Ed Wood. And it never disappoints. I just adore that movie so much. Uh, Martin Landau's fabulous. Won an Academy Award for his performance of Bella. I got to meet Martin Landau once and it was fucking great. So nice. great. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's Tim Burton's best movie, Johnny Depp's best movie. Uh, do you? I mean, did you watch it originally? Like, when did you first see that? I don't remember, uh, and it's not one that I can say I've seen hundreds of times. But um, yeah, I don't. I probably saw it in the nineties. Uh, but um, yeah, uh, and you know, I, I'm probably due to watch it again. I, I think I, I'm pretty sure I, I have. I still have the tape of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned Howard Shore, by the way. I, I recently learned. You know, Howard Shore did music for Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live. Did he really? Apparently, he did. Uh, but um, yeah, the other thing that always sticks with me, um, Larry and Scott. Yeah. Not that not that I know them really, um, but uh, Larry and Scott were on the Gilbert podcast twice, and I think the first time. It's well worth listening to for anybody. I do love the, those episodes. I have listened to those episodes. Yeah. The thing that, you know, that, that, that blows me away about Landau is that, A, they said they couldn't show Ed Wood anywhere in Southern California without Martin Landau finding out and just showing up. Uh-huh. <laughs> but the other thing is that Landau pitched an idea to them that was, do you remember this? No. He pitched an idea to them. He had developed a perfect Boris Karloff. <laughs> he could do Boris Karloff perfectly. And he said, here's the thing. What if we make a movie about the making of targets and I play Karloff? Oh, so like, wow. Which is like, that's an incredible concept. And they, you know, it never went anywhere and, and he's gone and, and so forth. But just the fact that he's like, he was in such good enough, uh, good terms with the screenwriters, and he came up with that. Like, let's do this movie, mm-hmm. which is just like what a what a what an incredible idea. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, yeah, he he was uh, incredible. But that, and it's like Scott and Larry's script. Um, I mean, this is well documented, but just just to drive home, it it was it was like it was incredibly rare then, and like it. It's even more unheard of now. It almost sounds like a fairy tale. They wrote that script um, because much like myself um, and what their movie did for me and my obsession with Ed Wood, they in college got very obsessed with Ed Wood and they wrote that script just out of sheer passion. And, you know, the early days, it was Michael Lehman of Heather's fame was going to direct it and Burton was going to produce and then Burton through the development process got much more connected with the material and they swapped roles and Larry and, and Scott's script ended up with Burton. Like I said, completely unheard of. It sounds like fucking fairy tale. He read it and it was said, good, let's go. Yeah. He had, as they say, he had no notes, no notes, no notes. Just, this is what I want to make. Let's go. Like, when does that ever happen? These are the guys that came from um, writing the Problem Child films, too. And Great Michael films. Lehman came from several movies I consider pretty amazing, but yeah. were not successful at all. So, yeah, yeah. neither. I just, and, 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 and even though a lot of people seem to think it's like the greatest movie and it played on cable a lot and it did become a cult hit. 
Problem Child was was like loathed even in its, in its production and yeah. was considered a flop and so forth. It became a hit, I think, on cable. Yeah, uh, yeah, video like on cable, yeah, yeah. But uh, oh, um, I recently heard this, which I thought was interesting. I've never read any of the Medved Brothers books. I have them, yeah. But I think even before Rudolph Gray put out Nightmare of Ecstasy, uh, I think the Medveds are the ones who really kind of brought Ed Wood into the... I, I, I heard this, I'm not certain, but uh, were the ones who kind of brought him into the limelight by writing about him early on. I think you're correct on that. Yeah, I, I haven't uh, I haven't done so much as uh, any more than browse through those books. But yeah, that that sounds right. I think I think that may maybe even Scott and Larry talked about that too, maybe a little bit. Possibly. I think um, I think I think Mike McPadden did. Yeah. But um, yeah, that that's a great that's a great choice, and I do need to rewatch that. Um, I'll call you up the next time that I <laughs> I watch yeah, it. Yeah, well, we'll plan it you know, together. All I have is the tape copy, I think. But we'll say, uh, you know, we didn't plan this. We didn't plan this at all. But the next one, pretty much on my list, is perfect. Um, a favorite movie. Um, uh, of a few people I know, but um, or one of their favorites, I finally got around to watching 1975's Hearts of the West, which oh. is a movie about the old days of Hollywood making westerns, like the western serial days. Oh. Um, it's Jeff Bridges in the lead with Blythe, Blythe Danner it's from 75, directed by uh, Howard Zeef, um, who uh. He he's got an interesting he's got an interesting body of work. He made Slither in the seventies, uh, which is actually a, a, a blast of a film. Um, he made the Dream Team, which was one I saw when it came out, and I always enjoyed. Sure. Yeah, me too. Uh, and Private Benjamin, which I you know I think I might have seen on TV. I'm overdue to to, to watch uh, to watch that again. Goldie Hawn. But, yeah, but Hearts of the West, it's like I recently started a similar one of these seventies movies that is the nostalgic look back at Hollywood by Hollywood, which was uh, day of the locust. And it was one of those, like I, I can do this. You hate doing this, but I will start a movie and then stop and come back to it. I have no problem with that. Like mm-hmm. I, to me, it's just, it's like, it's leaving your thumb in a paperback or right, like, it's, like a know, book. It, it's a, you know, I have no problem with that, but I didn't get back to heart to, to day of the locust. Again, it's a similar setting, but I, having watched um, Hearts of the West, I can't imagine it's even half as successful. There's something just so like beautifully put together, like whimsically tongue-in-cheek, but still kind of the writing is smart. Because Bridges is just—he's literally a guy who bumble who bungles his way into a into being a, an actor in westerns. He goes to Hollywood because he wants to write westerns. He's—he—he's—he he's, wants to be a writer, mm-hmm. and and along the way, along the way. He um, almost by accident steals uh, a load of cash from the Correspondence University in Arizona that he's been using to learn how to write. Uh From the two guys who are running the Correspondence University is a scam by two guys in, in, you know, who you're using like the address of like some some um, some rooming house. Uh, They're played by uh, Anthony James and Richard B. Schull. Okay, and mm-hmm. their their name they are the Crook Brothers. So oh. the rest of the movie, even though he's blundering his way into Hollywood and becoming like an actor almost by accident, the rest of the movie these guys are after him, like mimicking like the silly plot of yeah. like that kind of movie at the same time. Uh-huh. Uh, it, you know, everybody from like Alan Arkin, Alex Rocco, Herb Edelman, 
all these other people appear in this thing. It's so much fun. It's just wow. such, such an enjoyable throwback thing. It's only on an archive. Okay, physically, it's only on an archive um, Warner disc. Okay. Which means that it probably won't come out on Blu-ray unless Warner decides it. But there is an HD version in streaming, so it's out there. And honestly, like, it's one of those movies where, you know, when the whole thing is tied up and it's, uh, you know, uh, the whole story is is tied up neatly and so forth. It was, I would I would be willing to start it again. It was so beautifully wow. put together and enjoyable and just fun, and. The young bridges of that period of time is is just is so easy to watch. It, it just it, it like the way the whole thing it it never got like treacly as far as the nostalgia. It never got really like it was much. The movie keeps moving at such a at such a good pace that it never gets like too sentimental. If that makes sense, as much sure. as it's about like this wonderful time. Oh, and Andy Griffith is in it. And and oh. he Andy Griffith, it's one of the best roles I've ever seen because he plays a former Western star who was also a writer who is now relegated to being one of the backup cowboys, uh, oh, along wow. with Matt Clark, a character actor from the period that I always love seeing, and Burton Gilliam. They're just like the guys who are like, oh, we're shooting a western. You you stand behind that rock, and and, and you and and Matt, you're gonna get shot first today. You know, like they're just like the random fill-in cowboys. Yeah. So Andy, Andy Griffith does a really good job in it. Um, yeah, I, I really really loved Hearts of the West. Uh, Wonderful. I, I I hope I hope Warner, unless they're willing to license it, which is rare, but I hope Warner puts it out as a Blu-ray because it's it's uh, be easy. Yeah, I, I would buy that immediately. Nice. Great recommendation. I'm, I'm absolutely going to check that out. Uh, again, we don't really plan the placement of what we talk about, but just going off of that, I think now's the perfect time for me to bring up that. Uh, you know, I go back and forth uh, trying to watch more and more Elvis Presley movies. Mm. Uh, there's a there's a great or was I think it's probably all gone now. Um, it was nearing um, its last few days on the Criterion channel, so I took advantage and uh, watched 1956's Love Me Tender, the first and only time um, that Elvis Presley uh, was not top-billed. Uh, the rest of his career, film career, after Love Me Tender, which is his first film, he would be the top-billed. But this is his first thing, so he is not top-billed. Um, but I think, it's a, I think it's a pretty darn good film. It's a real compelling Western um, about four brothers whose uh, wartime homecoming is unraveled by a jealous love triangle, and then this ruthless pursuit of federal funds that threatens just all of their livelihoods. Um, you know, he looks great in it and, you know, the, his crooning melodies, all his leg shaking moves, you know, they, they leave a good impression, but really it's, um, Richard Egan's performance, um, as the eldest brother of the four, who's, um, still in love, uh, with the girl that Elvis Presley ultimately marries, um, in their absence, um, while they were at war, um, who's really good. His performance is, is nothing to sleep on, uh, really good stuff. Um, also amongst the cast is the great Neville Brand, uh, who's really great in it, too. Really good. He's like um, uh, one of the brother's former friends who becomes an outlaw at some point in the film. Um, but it's really good, um, you know, true to the core of like some of the great Westerns. It weaves a real, um, you know, great third act of suspense. And then there's a real nice heartbreaking sense of melancholy 
by the end of it. Um, not a perfect film, but still uh, pretty darn good. And like I said, from this point on, you know, Presley's career would sort of, you know, reach the stars and he would just be, you know, bigger than life. Um, but this is a this is a good, uh, you know, it's a it's a natural starting point um, to start since this is uh, his first film role. And of course, things like Jailhouse Rock and King Creole would follow. But yeah, this was a this was a fun one to finally uh, catch up on. Nice. Very nice. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been watching a few Westerns myself, uh, besides I mentioned Rio Bravo already. Um, there's a like four disc set that like I've meant to buy like three or four times and I finally got it. Oh, it's four disc. It's four movie single disc Blu-ray set called like four timeless Westerns. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a uh, Rio Conchos, uh, take a hard ride, which I've seen like four times, but I'm still like, it's one of those I'm like, I still want it to stick a little more because it's yeah, uh, yeah, I get know, it. L- largely black cast, uh, Western directed by Antonio Margariti. Um, mm. I can't think of the fourth one. Oh, uh, Butch and Sundance, The Early Days, which is Early a Days, yeah, pretty. I have uh, this set, I have this set, yeah. pretty goofy, uh, pretty goofy movie, and and a, a movie that, um, I'm just gonna mention it quickly, uh, because it was it was decent. I don't know if I'm gonna revisit it, but um. Definitely does not live up to the title "The Last Hard Men," yeah. Um, which sadly is, you know, does not have a porn parody that I'm that I know of. But um, <laughs> not yet, at least a gay porn parody. One would hope. But uh, yeah, it's Charlton. It's a Charlton Heston. Uh, it's Charlton Heston and um, uh, James Coburn, uh, mm-hmm. directed by Andrew uh, McLaglen. Uh, it, it's 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 a, it's one of the seventies westerns that's still working off of a conventional uh western template so it's not looking for subtext it's not trying to be an anti-western it's not trying to comment on vietnam and there's a couple of moments where uh they're trying to do very very obvious um peck and paw uh like let's do the action in slow motion you know yeah um where it's like it, it it was okay for a conventional western um, but it does have a, a something of an interesting cast in it. Jorge Rivero's in it. Barbara Hershey's in it. Uh, decent, not great. But I'll tell you, I'm going to go quickly into another one because uh, I saw very few movies um, on the big screen in uh, in the past um, few weeks or uh, this summer. To be honest, I've only really been to the Deuce, but I went to the Deuce. That is the Deuce film series at Nighthawk in Williamsburg, Brooklyn for uh, Mixed Blood, which is my first time watching Mixed yeah, Blood. Yeah, we didn't could, talk about this. I'm excited to hear your Could your not thoughts. convince you to come out to it, uh, <laughs> but we try. Um, Mixed Blood is a 1984 film written and directed by Paul Morrissey, the same Paul Morrissey who ran the factory for um, for Andy Warhol and directed movies, uh, you know, like... Uh, what uh, Andy Warhol's Frankenstein and mm. Andy Warhol's Dr- Dracula and so forth. Uh, Mixed Blood is a very rough, both like rough in texture and like um, like not a very high budget movie, mm. but really well done. Uh, it's it's a story of um, Brazilian versus Brazilian versus uh, Latino. Um, I think they're Dominican, but I'm not sure. Uh, drug dealers in oh. the Lower East Side. It's 
really raw and like it's very i would say it's really raw like the dialogue is very accurate to like 1984 where it's like it's 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 lots and lots of uh, really rough rough street language lots of casual usage of slurs it's got this amazing sense of comedy to it even though like it's like gangs of kids like 15 year olds getting shot left and right and um yeah, it, it it was really fascinating. Uh, it's mostly um, is mostly like lesser known um, lesser known actors, but um, the Brazilians are run by a uh, by a woman, which is actually like a a really respected Brazilian artist, uh, Marília Pera, I guess is her name. But it's one of like the four or five movies that Linda Carriage is in. Mm-hmm. Uh, who I think is Australian. Yeah, she's Australian. She's in Fade to Black, Surf 2, um, Stranger's Kiss, Alien from L.A., um, and this. And that's like four of... Uh, oh, yeah, I think she's also... She might be in Strange Behavior. I'm not, I'm not sure. Oh, sir. All films uh, I like. You'd recognize her if you saw her. Mm-hmm. Um, blonde. Um, she's Yeah, she's, she's the character who in Fade to Black. Have you seen that one yet? Oh, no? I love Fade to Black, yeah. I don't. I want to. I know but, we've talked about this. Well, okay. But me, she's the she's the character the who he thinks is 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 Marilyn in that. Yeah, yeah, remember. yeah. Oh, yeah, she's great in it. Yeah, yeah. It's not. I like that movie very much. I'm not gonna oversell it, but yeah. I mean, it being a movie about movies, that plays a lot into it. That it ranks very higher because of that for me. Right. Yeah. The uh, the obvious thing for um, well, we're gonna bicker about our opinions. That's what we're here for. That's what we do. Uh, That's what we do. Yeah. Uh, but um. But the obvious uh, comparison, even though it, like stylistically it's not even close, it's so much better designed, you know, in terms of the way it looks, is Alphabet City. Mm-hmm. And I think Mixed Blood actually was worked off a title of Alphabet City, but couldn't use it because of Amos Poe's movie. Uh-huh. But uh, really, like, really, it was very enjoyable. It's interesting that, that um, one of the actors is like, there's a bunch of non-professional actors in it, and, and it mm-hmm. shows but there's a scene shot in the um, I think it's called the Ukrainian. It's like the Ukrainian home or the or so forth. I think, I think that's what it's called. I've been in that place. It's on. Um, it's off of um, I think First uh, Avenue or Second. Uh-huh. It's, on, it's off of Second. It happens to be the same place. Uh, I went there for a loft party once, um, and it happens to be the same place where New Order played their first American show. Wow. Uh, it's a second story. It's a second story, like events, smaller event space. But mm. um, yeah, yeah, which is pretty interesting. But yeah, Mixed Blood was a blast. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, Fuck. I should have gone. You should have gone. <laughs> I can all, all I can do is invite you, buddy. All right. Yeah. Well, you know. Fuck. Yeah. This is this is an ongoing thing of me oh, getting to the deuce. And I should say, yeah, very rarely screened um, anyhow, but this was paul morrissey's own print that we saw oh cool that's just throwing salt in the wound i love that nice well that's that's what we do here yeah (laughs) um all right well i will raise you two um as well uh 
couple weeks back, once again at the Mahoning Drive, and they teamed up again with uh, Exhumed Films for something that I've been dying for for what seems like years now, certainly years. Um, and they did a uh, From Dusk Till Dawn show entitled Shot Out of Can Shot Out of Cannon. Uh-huh. Uh, and of course, it was um, you know a Dusk Till Dawn show uh, celebrating the legacy of the great Cannon films. So uh, in addition to American Ninja and Breakin', um, they also played the two that I'm going to discuss here, and that is 1987's Masters of the Universe. Um, Obviously, this is the dying days of, um, you know, canon's peak. Uh, This adaptation, of course, of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, live-action adaptation of it, is obviously when that brand was certainly on the decline, and this film sort of made damn certain that 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 was it. That being said, this was a film that I watched uh, routinely as a kid and still really like it a lot. Um, y- you know, you know, budgetary constraints be damned. It's a lot of fun. Uh, you have Dolph Ludgren, of course, playing He-Man. Uh, Frank Langella in a great performance as Skeletor, a performance that he himself uh, hails as one of his favorite performances, which says a lot because Frank Langella is That's a great actor, great actor, and he's done a lot of great roles. So for him to have absolutely no ego um, about it and, you know, can still proudly, you know, consider this one of his best roles, um, that says something because he is really great and very foreboding um, and intimidating in this and uh, great makeup design on him. You have a young Courtney Cox amongst its cast. Um, you know, and I think a lot of people get caught up in the fact that, like, you know, only the beginning of this film, the, the beginning and end really take place on Eternia and that it becomes this film, this kind of fish out of water film of them being on Earth. Of course, this happens for budgetary reasons because they probably did not have um, the money and capital because Canon was losing money so they couldn't afford really to tell the story this big epic fantasy with grand sets and it being looking otherworldly so you fix that by just you know jettisoning them and getting them trapped on planet earth um, but it's fun you know it's always been you know bright and colorful and a load of fun so that was great it was my second time seeing that on 35 millimeter and it looked great Mm-hmm. And then to end the night out, um, what better way to end um, a night out than ending things on Charles Bronson's final film for canon? That, of course, is 1989's Kinjite Forbidden Subjects. Um, this is, uh, you know, really nothing sets the tone of a film uh, more brutally than Bronson uh, sodomizing a goon with a dildo. I mean, does it get better? Do you see the sodomy? I think it's, I think you don't, by the way, that's, that's a t-shirt right there. Do you, anyway, um, no, but go ahead. Sorry. You're saying, yeah, no, no, you, they don't, yeah, they don't show that, but it's, it's more or less very much, um, suggested, very much suggested. But, uh, yeah, this film, uh, I think people can sort of take or leave this film. It's got an incredibly sleazy tone to it. Um, I find the tone suggested more than actually like, yeah, it, it, that's it, kind it, of yeah. Anyway, go on. It, it's certainly more suggestive, but I think it it's it's suggestive. It's suggestive nature definitely still leaves um, a very impactful, you know, sleazy tone uh, as you're watching it. Um, I, I think it's definitely one of his better and certainly more underseen 
films of the Death Wish variety. Um, I like it quite a bit, and it, it's very much um, extreme and sleazy, as I said. Um, but it's it's great to see him kind of, you know, open up endless cans of whoop ass on, you know, the uh, the underbelly of Los Angeles and the sexual deviance. Um, I know, like I said, I know people can take or leave this one. I've always liked it quite a bit. Um, I don't know how you feel. Um, I, I honestly, it, it's funny because I, I, I've spoken before about how I remember, you, you, you know, one of the things that they say, I remember this movie on television. One of the things that they say was helping to kill, you know, um, the theaters that played movies like this was home video. The other thing was, you know, what was uh, television and cable television. Um, I remember the World Network television debut of Kinjite, which <laughs> I may have seen. But I, I just I find the movie kind of boring, to be honest. And That's I, fair. I think a lot of the reason is, um, and maybe maybe television was in the mind of the producers, I don't know. Things are talked about but not shown, and I, yes. and I think, and that's why I asked about you know, the, the, that's why I brought up the sodomy, um, <laughs> as one will, sure. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, quotables aside, uh, be, just because like I feel like it throws some sleazy ideas around, but I think it's very, it's very clear this is not like. Uh, the early 80s. This is not um, the kind of movie that Bronson was known for at that point, and it's, it's, it doesn't have, like, the grit. And and to me, it just it seems like... I mean, it's no Death Wish 4. I'll put it that way. Death yes. Wish 4 is, to me, like, a, like probably the best B-movie, like, traditional B-movie uh, you know, Bronson film. It might be, but... It's, um, it's the best Death Wish, in my opinion. Yeah, I feel like I've heard other people say it. I, I, I honestly, revisiting Kinjite from having, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I saw it on television. I just remember the television bumpers bragging about it like it was, <laughs> like, really important. But um, but uh, I, I, I just, like, yeah, it's okay. You know, like, the whole thing that, um, what, the, 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 the girl gets groped on the bus by the Japanese yeah. businessman, it's, like, that kind of, like, okay, and... It kind of it, yeah. it kind of builds to like a payoff that you're supposed to buy into, and I'm just like, nah. I, yeah, they're, they're, they 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 take they take considerable time building these things up, and then their payoffs are very half baked. If there if there is if there is a criticism that I can make about that, that's where I think. Um, it loses its focus, and I think, like you said, that sleaze factor is certainly. Um, it's suggested, really. It's suggested. It's hinted it's at. Yeah, yeah, it's hinted at and compromised. But I think that that errs um, more on the fact that this is a this is a Bronson film directed by Jay Lee Thompson. If you had Michael Winner d- uh, directing this one, I think that's sleaze. I think the sleaze meter would have would have gone way off the charts <laughs> if he did this. So yeah, I think Possibly, with Jay Lee, yeah. there's definitely more of a restraint here. But for you know, for its lack of payoffs and you know, some sort of you know some half baked um things um uh, i still like it well enough and you know for it uh like i said capping off his his career at canon um well i guess technically death wish 5 face of death 
Um, it's still canon, but the less said about that one, the better. Um, this <laughs> one, that, that's the one with Michael Parks, though, right? That's the one with Michael Parks, a film that, you know, not even Michael Parks can save, which is, you know, that that's always a, that's always a terrible sign when Michael Parks can't save your film. Is it Michael Parks playing an Italian in that? Sure is. Sure is. Yeah. Yeah. Sure is. Cannolis play, you know, you know, they, they could be a co-star in that film, um, which, you know, for better or worse, I'm very happy because Kino did announce that they're bringing that to Blu-ray. So I'm happy to at least finish my Death Wish collection on Blu-ray. Death Wish 5. Yeah. Death Wish 5 is coming to Blu-ray, which is a, kind of exciting. I love um, that they had they had a six. They had a sixth one planned. But the, you told you know, me this. Yeah. The, the, you know, the the star already in his 80s had to go die. Yeah, I know. How dare him? How dare you, Chuck? Um, but yeah, like I said, you know, it's imperfect, still uh, reasonably sleazy fun. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, uh, not not the grandest exit, but still, you know, kind of enjoyably bombastic, uh, you know, conclusion for Bronson's canon career. So there you have it. I, uh, I, I, I'll still point you to, I don't know if you have it, but I, I really like for, it's a non-canon film, but, uh, mm-hmm. I really like, um, I'm pretty sure canon didn't make, uh, the evil that men do. Uh, I, I check that one out if you get the chance. I do have that. Yeah, I have that. That, that's one of the, that's one of the few, that might, yeah, one or two. I think there's one or two of like the bronze and action years of the eighties that I haven't gotten to. And that's the, that's certainly one of them. Yeah. I, I that one delivers on the sleaze in a way that's like believable, I suppose. Uh-huh. Uh, whereas I, I feel like, I don't know. I, I mean, we'll get past Kinjite, I promise, but I just, it, 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 I think the, I think it's one of these movies where the script was so clever that they want you to know how clever it is without actually like delivering, you know, a product that works, you know, but sure. that's, that's just that's my read on it. But I'll go from one canon movie, and this is literally like just the next one on the list. I did not plan this to a much worse canon movie. <laughs> okay. Um, and I think this is a this is a this has got to be a pickup for canon. But uh, it was a pickup for me because I just you know went and and dug this thing out because I'm like, what the hell is this? Well, I've pitched the idea before of a Greg Henry. Uh, like a, a like overlooked granite Greg Henry episode, which I mm-hmm. still love to do, with the exception of some of these movies are so fucking hard to find, or like they're uh, they're obscure. And I thought um, um, Mad Dog Blues, Mean Mean Dog Blues, Mean Dog Blues. I thought yeah. Mean Dog Blues, which is an excellent um, you know kind of rural prison or outdoor prison kind of um, labor. Anyway. Uh, labor gang type movie with greg henry um that's a good film Mm -hmm. but i found this one which is funny money from uh let's see from 1983 all right okay okay funny money i found on a lightning videotape it's never come out on disc to my knowledge it is an english production that was a must have been a pickup for canon Mm -hmm. greg henry and eg daily are the two americans in it Love and it. it's uh, it's directed by a guy named um, James Kenelm Clark, uh-huh. uh, and it's shot entirely in England with an English cast. Kenelm Clark is an interesting character because he seemed to mostly work. He, was, he has music credits as well. He probably came out of music, but he directed like maybe 10 movies. Largely connected to Fiona Richmond, I think he directed the movie that was titled in some places Hardcore, 
which is about the uh, adult career of Fiona Richmond, who is a, a big English porn, porn actress. Yeah. Um, and he made this movie called Funny Money. And I literally pulled this off the shelf and grabbed it. He also it. did uh, The House on Straw Hill with Udo Kier. Is that Ken Elm Clark, really? Yeah. Uh-huh. I don't know that one. Uh, interesting. But, um, yeah, you know, but it, so it purports to be a. Okay, how do we explain this? The way you look at the box is like it's called Funny Money and it's from 1983. So this is probably like a lighthearted, like, you know, a crime or caper, a lighthearted comedy or caper crime comedy type of thing. It's about two different two different um, kind of swindlers who are interested in stealing and using credit cards inside okay. the confines of a hotel in London. All right. And mm-hmm. E.G. Daly plays the character who wants to get uh, the Greg Henry character out of retirement. He's like playing piano and is a gigolo through his manager at the hotel for uh, rich women who want to have sex with him, mm-hmm. right? And E.G. Daly has just, her boyfriend knew the Greg Henry character previously in, in, in the States, has just been knifed to death, I think, at the beginning of the movie. She flies to London to find this guy saying he owes her X something or other, whatever, it's set up kind of as a um, kind of like a wry um, parody, so to mm-hmm. speak. And I, 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 I'm struggling with this because it's it's kind of trying to be a drama. It's trying to be a satire. And in certain moments, it's trying to be a comedy. And mm-hmm. none of it gels. Like, none of it really works. Like, yeah. everybody in it, even like some of the people who are staying in this hotel... Um, they're all grifters. They're all kind of like if they're not out and out criminals, they have one foot in it. Yeah. And Daly is good. I never really loved her. And it seems like it might be a little bit above, if not what she can do, what she could do at that point in her career. Yeah. Greg Henry is a great dramatic actor. Um, and this is like what when did body double come out? Was it 84? Yeah. Um, so it's in the middle of like his rise and, and he's already been working for years. He's like, despite their efforts, it just, it kind of doesn't quite click. And if yeah. you look at the box and the box art and how they packaged it, there's like the two characters don't want to work. You know, you know, she wants, she wants to work with him. He doesn't want to work with her. There's an occasional scene where he opens up a briefcase and it's all like the tools of how he counterfeits and 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 works over and buffs like credit cards to use credit cards. It kind of reminded me a little bit of um, of Harry in Your Pocket in terms okay. of like in terms of like uh, you know it, it's a, it's a detailed crime story that has a relationship story packed into it mm-hmm. and. The technology behind that crime, the monetary technology behind that crime doesn't really, you know, it's a, it, it, to modern audiences, it will seem very outdated. But it's, I don't know, I, I, like it was a really decent effort, but it yeah. doesn't go anywhere. And, and, uh-huh. and, 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 and unfortunately, it doesn't surprise me why it's, it's not on disc. Um, really hoped, really hoped I had found another 
really solid Greg Henry sleeper. But yeah. unfortunately, 1983's uh, Funny Money was not that. No bueno, huh? Oh, that's a bummer. I, I'm still... Well, but I'm, but I'm it was it, it listed as a Canon film, so yeah. Okay. Or Canon distribution. Still curious, though. Well, that's interesting. I'll Pretty to... sure that's tape only. I don't, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if you could find it on, on YouTube because it really feels like the kind of movie that, like, no one's expecting to make any money out of ever again. Sure. So it's, you know, it's in that it's in that space. Funny sure. money. Yeah. All right. Definitely going to seek that out for sure at some point. Um, I'll well, bring I'm it gonna... over. You can watch it if you want. But OK. Yeah, I'm down for that. Um, I will transition back to uh, Bridges country for a big one. This is a biggie. Uh, uh, you know, as with anybody, we all have gaps in our, uh, you know, movie watching uh, practices. And now this was a film that was attempted <clears throat> to be watched uh, during my high school years when a dozen or so friends at a buddy's house wanted to pop this on and as it started i had never seen it and then a lot of side conversation and loud talking was taking place and i knew right then and there that this is not my time for this film so i did not choose to pay any attention and more or less removed myself from the room at several times because i knew that this was not the time for this film fast forward to just a few short weeks ago when um my good pal dave wright Big props to Dave Wright for inviting me over to his casa, his lovely home. Um, Dave's a great guy, huge movie fan, arguably an even bigger music fan who has seen everybody, quite possibly everybody, um, uh, you know, in their early days, original Misfits, Cramps, um, U2 during their only New Jersey appearance, I believe, uh, at, in Paramus in the early 80s. Um, he is a, an incredible collector, an incredible archiver, uh, showing me his scrapbook of all of the Village Voice ads to all the shows he ever attended, original flyers. It's incredible. I had the most incredible uh, time looking at his collection of stuff, um, but it was he who prompted me that I needed to come to his house to finally watch the Coen brothers, the big Lebowski. That was a lot of loud talking and side conversation before you got to the damn title yeah, of the movie. Right. <laughs> it's all full circle now. It's all full circle. But yeah, this is, this is a film um, that... Uh, always when people have heard that I've never seen this particular film, it's kind of met with a, how have you never seen the big Lebowski? I know our, our good pal Daryl has certainly been one that's been beating me over the head because this is one of Daryl's favorite films as well. So I was finally really, really happy to check this one off my list. And again, thanks to Dave. Uh, I had quite possibly um, the perfect viewing experience for this and his, and his incredible setup at his house. Um, and yeah, the verdict is in now that I have seen it and <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Verdicts in. I thought it was great. I thought it was great. Uh, just a fantastic. Um, I'm a huge LA film guy. Um, so this is a wonderful um, LA Odyssey feature. Um, and again, uh, you know, highlighted by an incredible performance by Jeff Bridges as the dude. Uh, I love, uh, you know, this, this is a great LA film and a great LA film that sort of um, highlights the quirky characters and outsiders that populate this city. Um, and I think that they do a really great job at spotlighting that uh, it's, Obviously, you know, I'm going on about a film that seemingly everybody has seen and loved for years, except me. But this is new to me. <laughs> Did I ever tell you about the Marine I used to live with? 
No, no. Former Marine. Um, oh yes, wait, you did. You you were like forced to watch this movie like all the time. No, he no 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 no. This was, this was um, no. He uh, I didn't know. I wasn't forced to watch it though. I think a lot of people would tell you seeing it once is you know you have to see it like five times like the rest of us. Yes. Because yeah. Uh, yeah. because it definitely has like it's that embedded in culture at this point no i this guy matt i live with former marine literally kept the tape of it on top of the vcr and he would probably watch it like two or three times a week but Mm -hmm. every now and then he's like ah you know heavy boston accent you know maybe i'll give something else another try you know he he would start another movie get 10 minutes in and be like nah Nah, it's not Lebowski. Yeah, it's not Lebowski. And then, and then pop the tape back in, you know, replace it with the big Lebowski on on videotape that's already on top of his VCR because it's <laughs> he has he watched it all of like three days ago. And he, yeah, so like like I appreciate that dedication. I don't know if I could do it, but if there's a movie that can stand up to a lot of watches, it's it's probably that one. I watched the uh, Fargo first. Okay. Uh, besides the fact that it no, it's okay. I should, it came out first, but I shouldn't say I watched it first. I watched it to death. Like my friends and I, when I lived in in a dorm, mm-hmm. watched Fargo so many times that we would start laughing at parts that weren't even funny. They were coming we, up, yeah, yeah. Well, because because we just knew like after a while of watching movie a certain title over and over, you, you're picking up all all like the other tiny nuances and and yeah. the way the Coens put together a movie. It's really easy to do. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, th- this is one of those films where um, it could almost be intimidating because there's such a cult and such a built in love with it that, like, you know, most people coming to it who had never seen it might come away with it being like, I don't know what, the, you know, it was good, but I don't know what the big deal is necessarily. <laughs> uh, thankfully, I'm sure for all the dedicated fans of uh, my friends, you know, in my friend circle were probably very happy to hear me report that I did love it as much as I did, because it is great. And I will say that as much as Bridges is really great in it, I think the person who really um, won me over the most is uh, the great John Goodman, you know, an actor who immediately makes any film go up several notches just provided provided he is in a supporting role. Yeah, I mean, just he's any, best, yeah, he's, he's always he's always role. good in a supporting role. Yeah, he he elevates the support the he elevates the proceedings in a supporting role that much more yeah. where it's like, OK, this movie might be shit, but like John Goodman's good. John Goodman's always good. So like you have that going for it. And I love his character, which um, is totally unmistakably modeled um, after uh, John Milius. Uh, but he's so great in it. He, he's really great. And uh, how he treats Steve Buscemi's character is just <laughs> just wonderful. Fuck you, Donnie. Just all the time. I just, I'm just like impressed at how many times you've been around somebody quoting this movie and didn't know. Because that, I mean, yeah. we're talking about it's got to be hundreds at this point. Oh, all the time. Yeah. Now, now in retrospect, I mean, I would, I would certainly catch Daryl say things, and he's like, "You don't get that yet, but you will." And now I look back, I'm like, "Now I get it. Now I get this." But yeah, uh, long time coming. But yes, I would say that the wor- the wait was certainly worth it. It's great stuff. So uh, again, thanks to Dave for introducing it to me. Uh, that was a real fun one to check off the list. So yes, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I have now seen the Big Lebowski. So fuck y'all. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> we'll move on to something else to give you a hard time about. Yeah, please. I next promise. next one. Next one, please. Um Okay, uh yeah, I'm just bouncing around now. Uh I want to quickly mention uh you did mention a rewatch. I was trying in in setting up for this, I was trying initially to uh only focus on things that I'd watched for the first time. Mm-hmm. I did do a rewatch and speaking of, you know, starting something and not finishing it. Uh, I was over a friend's house. Uh, speaking of, you know, uh, the guy who speaking of who you watch a movie with, uh, and we have a sprawling list where just we palaver back and forth. And oh yeah, you know, put that put that one on the fucking. You haven't seen that on the. You know, yeah. we have to watch that one and so forth. Uh, we finally got to one that is um, a favorite of mine, and uh, and I think it went over pretty big. Um, but uh, we watched uh, Paul Verhoeven's Spetters together. Which oh, uh, cool. I I adore, um, and then uh, finished Spetters. I think we actually yeah we I think we actually picked it up from where we'd left off Spetters, and then we had a little bit more time before you know we got it got too late or what have you or we got tired because we're old, um, and we began another favorite which I haven't seen in quite a few years. I opened the Blu-ray of this, um, but um, Vincent Price maybe probably his best suited role ever uh mm. theater theater of blood oh great stuff which I... is which is outstanding yeah uh so yeah and actually i think i think i might be going tomorrow night to finish theater of blood which we did not finish the other night uh or i should say a week ago or whatever whenever it was um all right you know what you let's, uh, let's go to the 90s then all right fine um Ooh. Let's. And we'll go back to the drive-in to get to the 90s. So uh, in preparing for VHS Fest, um, Mike and I were talking off, off uh, before rec- recording about how uh, as much as I'm like, kind of like, okay, I'm, I'm good with, with, uh, with Lethal Weapon, uh, that was the first movie I've actually seen at the drive-in this whole season. Mm-hmm. Mike has seen like 200 but <laughs> nonetheless, take. nonetheless, uh, I was there for VHS Fest and it's, it's it, the VHS Fest. I'm vending. I'm selling tapes mostly. And uh, it's it's exhausting enough, especially with uh, weather variables at the drive in as they are in the season that um, I'm usually too exhausted to stick around for the movies after setting up and working all day in the heat and the humidity. Sure. So um, but in preparing, um, I'm always I'm always you know, prepping from a, a wide variety of VHS tapes that I have here. It is naturally the kind of event where horror and uh, more obscure horror will sell best. But I, if it's if it's obscure, it's on tape. I like to have it. Um, and I had a couple copies of this movie uh, called Vibrations. All right. And uh-huh. somebody came over to my table and said, have you seen this movie? And I said, you know, I haven't. Uh-huh. Uh, I cannot profess to have watched everything. And uh, you really should watch it. It's about and they, they explain the story to me. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And I realized I have like three copies of it. At least uh, one of them is sealed and so forth. Vibrations is from 1996. Do you know this movie? I don't. But okay, I'm Vibrations is direct to video from 1996, starring um, oh, James Marshall. I do know this. But Have you seen this or no? I haven't seen this, but yeah, now that you said this, I I know this poster very well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's Christina Applegate and James Marshall. The interesting thing is, it's directed, it's directed by the president of Lionsgate Films. Okay, okay. The president of Lionsgate Films, uh, if I, it, it might be uh, Pasternak, Pashornak, 
Pashornek, mm-hmm. I think is how it's probably said. Michael Pashornek. He directed and wrote this. It's the only movie he directed. This is a guy who has production credits on, you know, movies like John Wick 4, Hunger Games, um, Medea movies, Crank. This is the only movie he has a directing credit for. Yeah. It's direct-to-video. And uh, it's James Marshall, right? He's best known for uh, for uh, Twin Peaks, the mm-hmm. recurring role on Twin Peaks, I think. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, he is a from the beginning. It's actually a pretty decently budgeted movie, which is makes sense considering the guy uh, is a production is a production executive still working. Um, though I believe it's it's marked on IMDb as direct to video. Uh, James Marshall is has a, a rock band playing in his garage. They um, they are they, they they have some gig lined up in the city because they're suburbanites, mm-hmm. uh, and apparently there's an A and R rep going to be coming to it. And on the way there, he gets accosted by a pickup truck full of, you know, rednecks, basically mm-hmm. drunk guys who want to haze him. They trap him in a construction site and using a backhoe. They destroy his car and sever off both of his hands. He was a guitar player, okay? Uh We bounce forward, and I think this movie was shot in New Jersey and partially in in Manhattan, okay? Okay. This is a relatively local movie, as far as I could tell. It's hard to get the vocal cues on it. Oh, vocal cues. It's hard to get the the visual cues Mm -hmm. as to, like, you know, locations, but I think St. Mark's Place is on this movie. Okay. He is now... He is now homeless and living on the streets with the artificial hands that he refused to. He has artificial hands that he, you know, oh, you know, there's physical therapy scenes in, in it because, uh, you know, he's trying to learn how. To, and he gives up and now he's living on the streets and, and panhandling and sleeping in, in, uh, in, in whatever building he could sneak into. One of which he wakes up in because there's a rave happening. It's 1996. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And vibrations is basically uh, the rave equivalent of hackers. Okay. So imagine like that kind of hackers or the net, that kind of like, hey, it's technology. It's now yeah. uh, concept woven into this. So he lands in lands with a whole bunch of a whole new crew of friends, including like the very 90s, like 90s new agey rave it rave tinged woman uh played by um i think she she has there's a joke where she where someone says her what's your name this week and she's like oh yeah this is you know my the name i'm going by now it's Mm. christina applegate okay and and all her new friends including like two wacky guys one of which who goes by the name geek this is about as alterna like alterna trash as you can imagine for like the mid 90s who happen to produce techno concerts? Mm-hmm. They build, they build not only mechanical hands for our lead character, who <laughs> goes from playing guitar to like playing keyboards, but an entire like robotic uh, looking outfit that he wears while performing, and mm-hmm. suddenly and an event he actually becomes something of a uh, something of a sensation at live rave events playing keyboards to sort of kind of techno act you know techno music meanwhile they were smart enough to actually get a couple of you know then current techno acts like fierce ruling diva mm-hmm. 
to perform in the in the movie. Wow. And it's really silly and surprisingly effective. Surprise okay, effective. Surprisingly for a movie this light and this kind of like corny, because it is corny. There's no make no mistake. There's of course the relationship and you, sure. you, you know, do you really care about me or do you just care about helping? Yeah, you know, somehow yeah. he kicks booze uh like on her couch. You know, mm-hmm. he's got an alcohol problem, but you know, when he walks by a window after he's bought his last bottle of booze, he sees himself and he has that soul searching moment. And yeah. So yeah. It, it's got all the hackneyed stuff. And yet it was like it, it was like watching a 90s TV movie. It was yeah. it was so it was so much fun. Wow. What's really interesting about it, because I'm like, wait a second. Like looking at who's in this damn thing. It's Stephen Keats's final film released posthumously. Stephen oh, wow. Keats. Stephen Keats is actually one of my is a favorite character actor of mine. Uh, probably best recognized. He, he did all the TV shows in like the 70s. Probably best recognized as the son-in-law of Bronson from the first Death Wish. He's okay. the guy who's who keeps who's like the whimpering guy who keeps calling Bronson dad. What are we gonna do, Dad? You know, and so forth. Yeah. Uh, he's also, I think his first movie role is just unbelievable. He is the gun dealer in Friends of Eddie Coyle named Jackie Brown. That's his oh. character's name. Wow. Um this is his final movie. I kept going back and over like the IMDb because I'm like, wait, this lead character, I think his name is TJ in the movie, has a local suburban cop father, right? Mm-hmm. And and it is a basically unrecognizable Stephen Keats. Stephen wow. Keats killed himself in 1994. This movie came out in 96. It's his final role. Oh, it's like, and I didn't even know that going in. I basically took the lead from somebody who walked by my table from a from a VHS tape saying, "This is the, you know, this is this crazy rave movie where she, where where uh, Christina Applegate has a semi robotic DJ boyfriend, which isn't accurate, but anyway." Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I I don't know, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, I, I'm sure it's available somewhere, but Vibrations was actually a hell of a lot of fun for a wow. very silly mid '90s. Uh, locally lensed, at least, um, predictable movie. Wow, that I mean, hey, we still have a few more to go, but that might just be the dark horse of Scene Report Volume Four. If you want, I I think I have another tape copy. If you need it, oh, I'd love it. Yeah, that sounds that sounds great. You've certainly sold me for sure. Oh, that's great. Vibrations. Wow. Um, as I wrap up my list, like I think I got about three more to discuss. Uh, next up, it finds me heading back to the Mahoning Drive-In. Um, over the course of the last several months, I am a huge, huge Munsters fan. And I went and uh, watched the whole series, um, which consists of 70 episodes. Uh, the show was on two seasons. Season one uh, is a whopping 38 episodes, and season two is 32 not too uncommon, but still nonetheless, very big um, season, uh, you know, episode counts per season um, at this time uh, in television. Um, so naturally, this took me a couple months uh, and I just managed to wrap it up just in time for a Sunday screening uh, just a few weeks ago at the Mahoning 30 on 35 millimeter of 1966's uh, Munster Go Home. 
not a particularly um, incredible film by any means. Um, this film, uh, this film was produced just as the original series uh, wrapped up its production, um, and it's in uh, Technicolor, which is obviously a total reversal of what the monsters was. It was obviously uh, filmed in black and white for the two seasons. Um, and there's something about uh, like minor things that I don't necessarily love about the changes. It's so, you know, trivial and stupid, but when you, you know, take in 70 episodes, um, one slight thing that I didn't like from season one to season two is that uh, before the beginning of each episode in season two, um, they used to announce that the, the, uh, title of the episode they did that all through season one but then when season two begins they don't do that in season mm. one it would be in the monsters font font and it would say the episode title of course with the advent of dvd and dvd menus you know what episode you're watching as you're going into it but i didn't like that i always liked when they when they do that they announce like the title of what this episode or this week's episode is called so i never really liked that that much in season two um but you know the whole series like you know every episode everything's very self contained and as i was nearing the end i was like oh i wonder if at the end of this run there's going to be some sort of like resolution you know that that's putting it a little maybe maybe too harshly but you know you kind of wonder like oh is the last episode going to be like anything um different or some sort of an, an acknowledgement that this is the end and it's the answer is no, actually. <laughs> the, the the final episode of The Monsters is treated as self-contained as every episode before that. It's a hmm. self-contained episode where, of course, the monsters are treated, you know, they think they're perfectly normal, but of course they're, they're suburban, you know, um, neighborhood and the people that they encounter in everyday life, you know, are always terrified of them. It's that same sort of send up. So yeah, it's nothing like that. Whereas now, once you get to the movie, um, the movie was more or less put in place, um, as a men, you know, it was meant as sort of an introduction to foreign territories because this came right uh, in advance of like international syndication of the show. So this the film was sort of meant as a way to introduce them to international audiences. And of course, this is a different thing because it's in, in Technicolor, really bright, garish colors, which is fun. You know, it's a fun novelty and it's being set in England. So you get people <clears throat> amongst its cast like terry thomas who's really great but there's a different tone there's like an english sort yeah, of humor yeah. injected in it where it's meeting the monsters and it's it's a little different than the show is um another thing that's noticeably different in this is that um the role of Marilyn that was uh overwhelmingly played by the great Pat Priest um, is replaced here by Debbie Watson, who isn't nearly as great. It's everybody else from the monsters came back, but for whatever reason, she did not. I, I used to remember why. I don't know if it was a contract dispute or maybe by the time they did the film, she wasn't available anymore. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but she's not as strong as Pat Priest at all. Um, and while the you know while the show is always really funny, uh, it's it's like a ninety it's like an extended episode really. But there's something as much as the show is really funny and humorous, there's something lacking uh, with the lack of a laugh track on the movie. You know, it's like the yeah the jokes don't really land as great, and I also don't think um, it's as uh, it's as strongly written like they as the show was, but maybe it's just because like extending it out just didn't serve the monsters quite as well. And also the director Earl Bellamy, 
who had directed several episodes of the show. I don't think that he was the right choice for the director. Um, I think that Ezra Stone should have been the director. Ezra, um, he directed more episodes than of the monsters than any of the other directors on. I think he directed about 27 episodes of it, whereas Earl only had directed several. And again, it was a pretty tight knit group of directors. There maybe was like six or seven, you know, revolving directors on the monsters, but Ezra Stone, directed them more than any other and i think that he he got them better than any other director so i think the film would have been served if he was the director versus earl bellamy like i said it's not a great movie by any stretch but it was super fun seeing it great beautiful technicolor print um and it's kind of rare you don't really see monster go home get screened quite like that so it was sort of like the perfect cap of like reaching the end of watching the show and then seeing it on on a big screen like that was um super fun um but yeah, that that is Munster Go Home. How about that? All right. How about that? So, so uh, at least somewhat TV related, I'm going to throw two, relatively quickly two TV movies at you sure. that I watched. Uh, well, first one um, is basically a plug. Uh, I won't deny that is um, I watched The Seduction of Gina from the new Primetime Panic 2 box set, which I was, uh, again, very, very lucky to take part in. Uh, Primetime Panic 2 from Fun City Editions is the second three-film collection of television movies from the early 80s. Um, and uh, Section of Gina is a particularly impactful... Uh, I was talking to uh, another podcast friend of ours uh, today, and he figured it was his favorite of the set, actually. Nice. Um, it, it's Seduction of Gina, Incident at Crestridge is the second movie, and the third one is maybe the best one, best known one. I should say the best one. I don't know what I think. The, I haven't seen all three yet. I'm missing the. I'm missing this one now. Uh, the Death of Richie, but um, Seduction of Gina is Valerie Bertinelli, um, who is a um, relatively bored uh, woman who's married to a medical, a, a, you know, a, a, a doctor who's, who's still, you know, in, in internship. So he's working ridiculous hours and she blunders her way into gambling into hard gambling. Uh, and it's very, you know, for like a long period of time, Valerie Bertinelli was TV movies. Like you oh, couldn't yeah. hide from her. And she does a hell of a job in this because things get pretty out of hand. Uh, very impactful, um, and uh, I really enjoyed it. But uh, yes, uh, I was very honored again to be part of the uh, part of a Fun City release and party part of uh, Primetime Panic, and that's Primetime Panic too, which you can get from directly from Fun City at Fun City Editions. The other one, uh, much more obscure, uh, is a film. Um, another one that I just came across the tape and had to check it out. It's 1989's High Desert Kill. Mm-hmm. High Desert Kill is a throwback to is a throwback to like older sci-fi. You know, I'm thinking of like stuff like um, what was Night Slaves, the movie that we did on 70 Movies when we guessed it on 70 Movies we saw in the 70s. That's right. Uh, it's that variety of sci-fi where. Uh, even though it's from 1989, High Desert Kill, it is much more of a conceptual science fiction. It's not like just you know, um, adventure movie in outer space. So there's multiple. There, there's a crew of uh, three or four guys. There it is. 
Have you, have you watched it or no? no. I say, when I say there it is, I mean, Mike not. has turned around to pull out a copy of the movie that he hasn't watched. Who put that out, by the way? That was Scorpion. Scorpion. Okay, so I watched it on a tape. Uh, three friends go into like the desert to go hunting, but something has gone wrong, they find out, in this area. And they find it out from Chuck Connors. And the more I look at like a guy like Chuck Connors, especially in this period of time, he's kind of like, you know, a Jack Palance uh, type. I think he was pretty, he might have been more Great of a comparison. Well, but in real life, because Jack Palance was like a legendary weirdo. He's the kind of guy where you'd ask him a question. And he would start talking about like, you know, crystals or something totally yeah. off topic. And, and and that's really what Connors is doing here. Connors is the older hunter trapper who's in this area. He said all the all the game is gone. He doesn't know what happened. They all disappeared. Basically, um, what basically they come to learn that there's some alien being that landed in this area, and he's using them as test subjects. Oh, um, and it so happens that they're going back to this area with the nephew of one of their friends who accidentally died, um, like a year before or two years before or something. The alien takes on the form of that dead friend when they actually confront him. Cool. Uh, Mark Singer is in it. Uh, and he's actually pretty good. Like, uh, like I think Mark Singer's okay, but I, <laughs> I realized watching a few Mark Singer movies that this is a guy who might be at his best when he's acting with his mouth open, when he's just standing there like <laughs> mouth agape, and it's like, yeah, that, that's that's what we expect from Mark right. Singer. But he's it, it was surprisingly surprisingly effective in terms of like that's an interesting idea that's very well written, and for '89 it felt. You know, it actually reminded me of something like a movie I brought up a few times, um, uh, which is actually directed by the guy who directed Seduction of Gina, Gerald Freeman, Friedman, uh, Cold Night's Death, which is mm-hmm. another like the alien is messing with us uh, and we have to figure it out type story. Uh, High Desert Kill is directed by a guy named Harry Falk. Uh, and it's one of his last another, you know, journeyman television director. It's one of his last movies directed um I think he, you know, this is 89. I think he, think he might have maybe died in the 90s. But um, he also made, here's a movie I need to revisit. I mean, talking with some friends of ours about like doing, um, you know, more obscure Robert Forster movies. He directed a TV movie for Forster that's actually really good called The Death Squad, which mm-hmm. is kind of like um, Magnum Force. But like, I think it came out, might have come out before Magnum Force did. Mm-hmm. It's that kind of like uh, there's vigilantes on the police force type of uh, type film. But High Desert Kill was quite a surprise. It was a pretty oh. strong. If you if you like if you're into like a, a little bit more out there, um, you know, sci-fi tinged, you know, uh, visitation type story. And that's '89, so that's like that's actually pretty ahead of the game for what would happen in the '90s with the X Files and stuff like that. So. Sure. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. Definitely interesting. Well, I guess I will wrap up uh, at least my portion of this scene report. Uh, I, at the time of this recording, I am just coming off of a really epic weekend at the Mahoning Drive-In where um, they did a two-day event, a Ghostbusters fan event, uh, which was pretty remarkable. Um, I was there Saturday where they... um, They screened the original uh, Ghostbusters with its sequel, Ghostbusters 2, and the latest installment, uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife, uh, digitally. Um, It was an incredibly packed, sold-out screening of fans of all kinds, young and old, families and kids. We had a screen-accurate 
Ecto one on the lot uh, that um, they hail originally from Jersey, actually right around my area, which is pretty fascinating. We were talking um, hmm. a beautiful car. Uh, again, uh, my buddy James, who was pretty integral uh, in getting the Ecto one there and, uh, you know, formulating um, this show. Uh, we uh, were dressed to the nines in these costumes. These the pictures will speak for themselves. Oh. Um but uh, yeah, the the pictures are plentiful once they get posted. Uh, it was incredibly fun. Uh, you know, we we agonized over um, these costumes. Uh, excuse the UFO that is landing <laughs> at Dino's uh, place. Um, but uh, yeah, it it was. Uh, we had these incredible costumes made that um, you know, as you know, as guys in their mid thirties will spend their money on. <laughs> we got these incredible costumes made that, uh, looked like they were just right off, uh, you know, the, the costume de- designers, uh, shelves, um, as it were, uh, we had our screen accurate proton packs on, uh, amongst a sea of other people dressed to the nine, uh, like the ghostbusters. Um, so it was an incredible event. It was so great to see so many different age groups and, you know, w- we know the legacy and of course the impact of ghostbusters, but it's so cool to see that impact, you know, right in front of you where you're seeing kids, um, that in many cases came up to our knees and were so excited to be experiencing these films with an Ecto-1 um, in their presence. Um, so it was a great experience. Uh, you know, like I said, you know, kicking the night off, we got to experience uh, the original Ghostbusters, which I believe was from an original 84 35 millimeter print that looked great. It looked great. Um, and of course, you know, what's there to say about Ghostbusters that hasn't been said already? It was lightning in a bottle when it happened. And I think that they've been trying to chase that ever since 84. Um, and just, it, you know, none of them can capture quite what that original film de- did. Uh, it's a comedy classic. Everybody's great. Ned Dan Aykroyd, uh, Harold Ramis, of course, the great Bill Murray, Ernie Hudson, Rick Moranis, Sigourney Weaver, you know, so many people are great in it. It's a great New York film too. Um, it's a really, really great New York film. Um, great score in that. Is that, that's Elmer Bernstein, right? Elmer Bernstein did, uh, the music in that. Um, Sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is great. Great stuff in that. But it's a comedy classic. That was my first time ever seeing it. That was a big, big, big driving force for me going there, because for as many opportunities, at least in our area that, you know, Ghostbusters comes around on 35, I've always missed it. So this was a big bucket list title for me. Um, So, of course, uh, absolute classic to experience that. Uh, and then following that was, of course, its sequel, 1989's uh, Ghostbusters 2, which, interestingly enough, I watched Ghostbusters 2 far more than the original as a kid because we actually owned Ghostbusters 2 on VHS. So I watched that film a lot um, as a kid. Uh, it's a lesser sequel, and I think most people would agree that it's not as good as the first one, but there's still fun to be had in it. I don't necessarily think that the comedy is the, certainly the comedy isn't as strong as the first films, but there's still great stuff in it. You know, uh, Bill Murray's uh, Vankman uh, when, you know, early, early on when he's uh, hosting the world of psychics um, television show is really effective. Um, the courtroom sequence with the Scolari brothers is really great. And it does have a really imposing and threatening um, antagonist in this one with Vigo 
he's a pretty like intimidating presence as a villain. So I, I think that's really effective, but yeah, it's definitely um, not up to uh, the standards of the original, but it's still fun. And again, really uh, great and special experience to see that there. I did not stick around for Ghostbusters afterlife. Um, Cause you know, consider me crazy for wanting to get home uh, before 4am sometimes. <laughs> um, so uh, I didn't stick around for Ghostbusters Afterlife, but I did see that um, originally and it's fine. It's, it's fine as far as these quote unquote legacy sequels go. Um, mm. Although like, like most, you know, um, fans of the original, it feels counterproductive to do these, you know, really passionate love letters um, to these films from decades past, and then you're just ultimately bringing in original cast members to more or less do exactly what they did in that first film. Do you know what is I that, mean? Is like, that what happened? This is I, what a I, lot I, of it is. It, it's very sentimental. I don't want to take anything away from Afterlife because I did, I did like it quite a bit, but what you do in bringing the original cast members back almost to the T the third act of that film, I think there's sentimentality to it woven through where like it does tug at your heartstrings and it's effective in that. But ultimately what the original cast members are meant to do is it's great. The fans are going to love having you back. And what we're going to do is we're going to give them the climax of the original film, but with you guys just older down to (laughs) literally down to them facing off against the same antagonist from the original film like that feels like a wasted opportunity to me that just feels like a wasted opportunity um but i digress uh but yeah it it was it was such a special night a a sold out crowd and again personally for me seeing both of those films on 35 was, was a real treat but yeah so much fun on that lot it was so much fun being uh in the costume and just sort of like the electricity on the lot like it was it was so it was just you know fan passion through and through like people came out in droves to see those movies because they're just such fans you just saw so many generations there on the lot and that's that's ultimately the greatest, you know, gift of cinema is just seeing like, you know, new and, you know, more and more generations coming to these places to experience it all together. So awesome way um, to see those films. And that, my friend, is going to do it, at least for my portion of scene report. I will hand it off to you to uh, close okay. us out. Yikes. Uh, uh, all right. Well, I I have a lot, actually. Uh, I'm going to try to run through a bunch of these quickly. Um, I did re- recently get... Um, I haven't quite finished off. Uh, there's, I think, uh, eleven or so. Uh, I think there's eleven Mike McPadden commentaries on disc, and yep. I've got a bunch of them. But I just finally got um, Mike McPadden and our, our pal Ben Reiser did a a commentary for a fantastic movie that very few people seem to know, uh, Five Corners, which uh-huh. is a John Patrick Shanley. Uh, who also wrote, you know, Moonstruck and uh, um, The January Man, which we covered. They did a commentary that's only on the MVD Blu-ray of Five Corners, which was a delight. It actually turns out, Ben told me, uh, it's their first commentary. So if you're a fan of 70 movies we saw in the 70s or Crackpot Cinema podcasts, this is basically another podcast, their commentary on that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just make sure it's the MVD version because there's another – 
there's another Blu-ray that doesn't have it. Um, and unfortunately, they, they mention there's a commentary. They don't put their names on either the menu screen or the back of it. Oh. But um, that was a nice uh, new addition. I just threw that in as a like, pulled that out of the package uh, a day or so ago. Um, finally watched The Happy Hooker Goes Hollywood. Oh, which yeah. is uh, which is a pretty ridiculous film. It's a canon film. It's very much like cross um, the movie Hots with uh, Hollywood Boulevard, and that's kind of what you have. Though it's uh, it was made by Canon, and he's got it again. And, <laughs> and you haven't watched it, right? Uh, no comment. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it's um, I mean, Chris Lemon it has a pretty big role in it. Uh, Adam West is in it. Richard Deacon is in it. Yeah, it's great cast. Uh, Phil Silvers shows up talking about Georgie Jessel. Um, there, Martine Beswick plays the, the the happy hooker herself, and the idea is she goes to Hollywood and they want to make a movie with her, and she doesn't like how they screw her over, and there's a bunch of screwing in it. Uh, but then she makes the movie herself, haha, with her with her band of prostitutes and so forth. It yeah. is very very ridiculous, but it was. A good deal of fun um at a, a relatively enjoyable movie and probably the only one between the two of us rated g uh for this installment <laughs> i just had to take a look at this uh i don't think this is on disc 1976's joe panther all right okay <laughs> directed by a guy who's mostly did television i think he directed a movie called christina not the 80s christina with Joel Shepard, but an early 70s Christina, which I don't know. I think it looks like a drama. Hmm. Paul Krasny, kind of a, you know, you know, journeyman, uh, a television director, TV, TV episodes and, you know, a couple TV movies here and there. Mm-hmm. Joe Panther is actually a story about a seminal kid named Joe Panther Takes place in Florida, shot in Florida. Even Rico Browning, who was known as a uh, yeah. a guy who did a lot of second unit work, worked on this movie because he, he worked in Florida. Um, so uh, Joe Panther uh, the, is a young Seminole kid who is trying to figure out where his place in the world is, if it's only among the Seminole or if he should be in the world of uh, the quote world of the white man. And he tries to get a job on Brian Keith's boat because Brian Keith uh, Brian Keith's character uh, runs a boat and he needs a needs a deck hand. He's got a first mate and he needs a deck hand. This is like a this is a power boat. This is like a sure you know um, like a fishing boat type of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, the his elder in the Seminole tribe playing a guy named Turtle George is Ricardo Montalban with braids. Okay. okay. His best friend, who is actually, actually the, the, the lead character is, is a native, the, the lead actor is actually native, uh, has a small career, but he, he did a bit of acting. I don't have his name in front of me. His best friend is played by A. Martinez, the same A. Martinez from Walking the Edge, who also was a veteran, I think he started in the 60s, of television. Um, he's also in uh, The Cowboys and so forth. Mm-hmm. It's just a whole adventure story that involves... A couple of guys trying to uh, use the boat behind Brian Keith's back to smuggle people, uh, I think, smuggle people into the United States through Florida. One of the bad guys who ends up working on the boat who does this is played by Cliff Osmond. 
one of my favorite guys who I talked about kind of excessively, admittedly, because uh, <laughs> he's in uh, on the commentary we did um, for uh, Incident at Crestridge. But I think I've mentioned him, he, him here as well. He plays yeah, the yeah. warden in Sweet Sugar and so forth. Surprisingly fun, you know, light movie. Um, and uh, plenty interesting. Uh, so 1976 is Joe Panther. If you find it, it's probably going to have to be on tape. He, uh, um, and Cranzy, he did two of the Kojak TV movies in the 80s. 90s, actually, I think it was. Early 90s. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. He Krasny, did two yeah, of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is interesting. Uh, a movie that I watched, and I've, I'm making fun of Mike because he's got all these movies behind him that he hasn't watched. I watched a movie that I knew had two titles because I had the tape under yeah. the title Break In. Two words. <laughs> Break In. Uh, after I watched it, I was only I didn't realize until I was rifling through a, one of the many piles of movies that have threatened to take over my life. It's a movie I own on its original title, Loophole, on disc that I bought during a Kino sale. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. I thought I had I thought I had like a something tape only. Uh-huh. Uh Break In is also known as Loophole. It's an English bank heist movie. Yeah. With, I like it. Oh, you've seen it? Yeah, yeah. It was decent. It was decent with Martin Sheen and Albert Finney. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was all right. Uh, and let's see. Uh, Final Embrace was recommended to me, uh, directed by a music music video director. It's a New Horizon tape, 1991, mm-hmm. um, directed by Ole Sassone, I think is his name, directed, as I said, music videos. Robert Rustler, who uh, shows up in a bunch of 80s movies, uh, smaller roles. Science, um, Nightmare 2. Yeah. yeah, you know, you know, uh, Dee McCafferty, who's in, who I remember from FX2, Dick Van Patten plays the older cop in this in this uh, like kind of noir influenced movie, mm-hmm. and I don't remember if it was Deborah Vance maybe I can't remember her the, the actor the, the female actor's name. Uh, it's his daughter in law in real life. She's married to one of the Van Patten boys. Oh wow, the lead. So it's a story where um, somebody kills this uh, somebody kills this uh, this this female pop singer. And um, it turn out of nowhere. It turns out that she has a twin sister. So mm-hmm. it's the whole like it's the whole calculus of the people behind the pop singer, the video, the guy who makes the videos, which is Dee McCafferty, the her producer, and so forth, trying to figure out who did it. Meanwhile, the Robert Russler character is the cop who is assigned to protect her from a stalker. The original, the original singer who gets killed, he uh-huh. fails. He was sleeping with her. Her sister shows up out of nowhere. He has to protect her. He ends up sleeping with her as well. Of course. So, moderately twisty, but, uh, you know, for a low-budget thing, decent. 1991, that's Final Embrace. Cool. And I'll, 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 end with the, I'll end with the biggest, the biggest like, real movie here, I guess. Uh-huh. Though I think uh, it got overlooked. I, um, yet another, like, incidental, like, uh, movie mentioned on the Gilbert podcast um i think by craig bierko mentions it in in terms of um another great uh another great guest on that on the gilbert podcast was danny aiello yeah this is 1991's once around which is lasse hallstrom's um first it's his movie that he made prior to making who's eating gilbert or what's eating gilbert grape oh wow um i like lasse actually a lot 
Yeah, I, I, I need to say, I don't know most of his movies. I, I, I can't, I mean, uh, Chocolat is one of them, right? Yeah, Chocolat, Chocolat's very good. I saw that theatrically. Yeah. I think I might have that kicking around here somewhere. But it's, um, ho- the one thing, I heard it was good. I love Danny Aiello, and Aiello is fantastic in this. The one thing I kind of wish I knew, because I'm already looking at this, like, I know that location in the opening credits, is that it's a Boston-based movie. That will get you. Holly Hunter and Laura San Giacomo do their best to do Boston accents in it. <laughs> do their best? So what are you saying? Uh, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I, w- I, I would have liked that as well. But it is one of the movies, you know, especially in the 90s, Richard Dreyfus got typecast. He's the asshole. He's the jerk. We don't like him, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. He's, he plays a jerk in this who is actually quite human. And a lot of the story, you know, is about him. Gina Rollins is married to Danny Aiello. They're uh, a very tight-knit Italian Italian uh, family in the suburbs of Boston. Uh, to the point where, like, their adult daughters with their husbands actually live in the house. Or one, one of them lives in the house. And this is really kind of nice drama that unfolds after um, Holly Hunter, who's the... Uh, less successful in relationships than life daughter mm-hmm. her um her boyfriend breaks up with her played by dominic uh, played by griffin dunn who is one of the producers on this nice um he breaks up with her suddenly she goes on vacation on this like we're going to teach you how to sell uh condos as a realtor like you know one of these like yeah. uh seminar type vacation things and she meets this loudmouth richard dreyfus who's the number one earner they fall in love. She brings him back to Boston. The family doesn't know what to do with him. I think I need to see it again. I okay. liked it. I really liked it. Uh, and there's some amazing performances. And it is one of these, like, dramas where time passes and things happen and different people and different pairings and whatnot. San Giacomo's actually uh, – she gets married at the beginning of it. She's She's been having a an affair with the neighbor. The neighbor doesn't want to let go of her. Yeah. Danny, Daniello, at one point, he he retires – retired he doesn't know what to do he feels that his family is falling apart gina rollins has a couple amazing scenes uh dreyfus as this loudmouth who's very passionate but also the kind of guy who gets up in front of a crowd and says hey uh did you hear about the man who had five penises his pants fit like a glove you know he's saying (laughs) those kind of crass jokes yeah yeah um you know it worked really well and I think I need to check it out again. But yeah, that's I'll leave it at that. I I, I tried to watch as much as I could, and uh, oh, I left off a hundred rifles. Uh, the, when I saw you at the drive-in, I picked up a VHS copy of a hundred rifles. Making noise everywhere. Sorry, uh, I can't beat the plane. So it's fine. It was um, a UFO. <laughs> it was a UFO. Yeah, it was the it was the it was the high desert kill uh, UFO. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Another Gilbert, another uh, a Gilbert um, movie he mentioned over and over was 100 Rifles, which he would mention in podcast to people who had no idea what the fuck he was talking about. 100 Rifles is directed by Tom Grease, Jonathan Grease's uh, father, who yep. directed a lot of Westerns, including the big one, I think, is Will Penny. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a movie where Burt Reynolds is a smaller character, or I should say he's second build to... to um, Jim Brown and Raquel Welch. That's right. Uh, pretty good Western. Pretty interesting Western. And Gilbert always talked about how it was controversial at the time because Welch and Brown uh, have romantic sequences in the movie. Uh, pretty pretty good. Pretty good Western. 
So I'll have to check. I have that one as well, obviously. Uh, and you have to watch. I, man, come on, of course. <laughs> next that's, time uh, I'll have all I'll have all these watched next time. You know you this. Go. That's the spirit. <laughs> you know this. Uh, that's a Kino Lorber Studio Classics release, if I'm not mistaken. Hundred yeah. Rifles. That's right. So that's all I got. That's, that's what hey, I see. That's good stuff. Uh, you you know you bringing up Danny Aiello that. Uh, uh, as I was watching Ghostbusters 2, actually, I noticed Danny Aiello third did some stunts on it. So there, there you go. go. There yeah. you go. The only thing I remember, I don't, I, I, Ghostbusters, the first Ghostbusters is the first movie that I ever saw, like, ad nauseum. Like, as a kid, I saw sure. it. Pretty sure I counted, I saw it 30 times on video. I believe uh, it. And I saw it in the theater a bunch. I, I, well, I should say a bunch. I don't remember how many times I saw it in the theater. If I saw it more than once, that would be unusual that I conned one of my parents into taking me back. But who knows? Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the only thing I remember about Ghostbusters 2, honestly, I think that's the one that has uh, Run DMC's pause is, uh, is a song yeah. in it, right? Yep, okay. Sure is. That's yep. about all yeah, I yeah. is. So good. That's all I yeah. got. Yeah. Well, hey, man, this was a this is always a fun one. Scene reports always good. It's always good to just kind of, uh, you know, kick back and let loose in a more, you know, laid back conversational way, just catching up uh, with each other and about the things that we've watched. Um, you know, we always I always feel like I want to watch more and I feel like I was a little lacking on this one. But again, busy times. But I think no way. Between, no way. between the two okay. of us, I think we did watch we did watch a lot. Uh, and as much as I went kicking and screaming into the night of being on a, you know, uh, um, a letterboxed blackout. I think it's going to serve this episode well. So thank you for making me you do can, it. You can catch up now. You know, it's 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 you know, whatever. yeah, it's. I appreciate fun. I appreciate you entertaining the challenge. I did, I did, and I I, I I did it. So that that's all that's all we can ask. But yeah, like I said, always fun to do the scene reports, and yes. uh, always good to kind of get this one out just as uh, the summer season is just slipping away from us. Um, as always, guys, we appreciate you guys tuning in and supporting us. Uh, Dino, let the fine people know where they can find us if they don't already. We are I Eat Movies podcast on both Facebook and Instagram. Please rate this episode. Please let us know what you thought. You know how to find us on social media. And tell your friends that Mike finally saw The Big Lebowski. (laughs) (laughs) Always a good one. Always a good time catching up with you, D. So until next time, ladies and germs, eat more damn movies. Thanks again, D. Thanks, Mike.